This is Marie Valindo and Emma Rothman, and you're listening to The Archives, brought to you by the Resource Center at the Old Town School of Folk Music. It's summer in the South. A country boy. A city girl. Boredom hung thickly in the Appalachian air, penetrated only by the sweet blooming of young love. Eddie, a prophet, and I started getting very sweet on each other. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. (laughs) Now, um, Eddie was, of course, Frank Prophet's son. And... How old were you? Ten. 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 Old enough to have a sophisticated (laughs) love affair, my dear. Yes, (laughs) double digits. (laughs) So, I mean, it was all very innocent and very sweet, but we started a correspondence, which made it real. Because if you write a love letter to someone, then it's it's not just in your imagination. It's requited. Mm -hmm. And recorded. Requited and recorded. (laughs) Damn right. And and then the the thing that topped it off was he sent me this little rabbit's foot, oh. yeah, as a token of his affection oh. for me. So, yeah, and and I think I had mentioned to you that he signed his first letter with X's and O's, and I had never seen that before, and I had to somehow work it into a conversation with my mother, and of course she wanted to know where I had seen that and why I wanted to know. <laughs> That was Rebecca Armstrong, daughter of George and Jerry, who we were really pleased to chat with last week. Um, And that was just one of many uh, really fun memories she shared from trips down south with her parents in the 60s. Yeah, it was really great to hear about those trips from a child's perspective and the ways that they sort of entertain themselves, leaf racing and whatnot. (laughs) Um, Kittens and puppies featured broadly and largely in her memory. (laughs) Exactly. And so we actually had uh, sort of the great opportunity to jog her memory a little bit um, by playing a recording from from 1963 uh, in Stark, Arkansas with Almeda Riddle singing Farther Along. Farther along we'll know more about... That one? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great one.
recording, everyone was singing along to the songs that they were learning and, and collecting. Um, yeah, it's Almeida teaching them a song, not just like, here's this thing that I'm going to show you that you can record. Right, and it also is this way of preserving the song, not just on a recording tape. Um, yeah, it seems like everything they did was really with a genuine curiosity and the motivation to learn it themselves as well as preserve that moment on tape. Right. So it was like this preservation as like musicologist, as the musicologist, folklorist, whatever you want to call them. And also, you know, I think curiosity just as humans, but also like sort of uh, collecting as performers. They yeah. certainly performed these songs later on. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And that's kind of, that's one of the most interesting and distinct things about the work they did. Right. And it's, it's sort of in this way that, like, that could sort of be viewed as, like, this almost exploitive thing. Like, you go take these songs and then perform them. But the nature of what they were doing and the tradition in which these songs came from actually called for people to do that, to learn the songs and pass them along and take them with them, which is exactly what they did. And even more important, I think, to that aspect of it, these were people they had relationships with. Right. right. Not just as a subject, but as friends and um, fellow performers. They connected these people to the broader community of folks interested in authentic American folk music from around the country. And um, from our conversations with Rebecca Armstrong and Frank Hamilton, they also really felt that they were a strong link between Chicago and particularly that region uh, of America, you know, for Chicago in the 1960s, early 1960s. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the ways that they most solidly connected these two communities is by actually performing songs in Chicago that they had learned in the South or learned uh, in the mountains. And so they actually performed farther along, which they learned from Almeida with a group um, of community members that they called the Golden Ring.
I guess it was the hum of the uh, accordion, yeah. So we just heard a recording of The Golden Ring, um, singing farther along from probably somewhere around 1964. Uh, and The Golden Ring was a collection of ever-shifting ever community members, but usually around the same, same people that got together and recorded, I think, two albums um, for Folk Legacy. And yeah, and it included yeah. folks we know, such as Win Strachey, uh, Joe Hickerson. Um, those are a couple names that we've seen mentioned in regard to the Golden Ring. And Howie, Howie Mitchell. Mitchell. Ed Trickett. Mm-hmm. So yeah, other than that, it's, it seems like it was a broader group, but uh, yeah, kind of ever-changing. And so uh, we'll let Jerry tell you a little bit more about the beginning of it. The Golden Ring started out to be an Armstrong family record. Um, Norm Pellegrini was taping it for us. We'd go down to FMT when we had worked out some. But then, as I say, at Christmas, we often had all these marvelous house guests. So George said, why don't we do some things with Howie and Eddie? You know, that would be great. But then at a party one night, uh, Herb Noodleman was there with his wash tub bass, and Wynn Strachey was there. And... Um, so we started doing some songs together, and it sounded so good. We said, why don't you guys stay an extra day, and we'll go down to FMT and tape these things we've been doing together. And that's how the Golden Ring sort of evolved. So in 1964, the group got together again in a Golden Ring reunion, calling themselves the New Golden Ring. And at that point, Jennifer and Rebecca were big enough or old enough to join them. And so... Here's a recording of them uh, playing, playing fiddle and singing The False Night on the Road. Thank you. 
also, um, I think it's really cool that it really seems like the Golden Ring was a very natural extension of just their lifestyle, the way they were hosting people in their home all the time, um, and the fact that they would just have these music parties, and this just developed organically uh, out of their, their life uh, in Chicago at the time. And Rebecca talks a little bit more about what, what that was like in this clip from our interview. So people like Howie Mitchell of Dulcimer Making Fame, Ed Trickett, the golden-voiced and fleet of finger on the guitar, Joe Hickerson, of course, Library of Congress fame. Um, we started hosting folks who would come, and we recognized there was this lovely kind of uh, embroidering and interweaving and harmonic convergence of sound that somehow when we sang together with certain people, it just happened. You could feel things fall into mm -hmm. place. And the voices, the blending, you, you, the, the bass voice always picking up beautifully, and then my mother's high soprano holding the melody over here. And so, um, you know, when you had critical mass of people, my mother would make half a dozen phone calls and lay out a spread of food, and the house would start filling up. And there was always one wall set aside for the instrument cases. You have an entire wall of guitar and banjo cases spread up against the wall. And lots of, uh, at that time, cheap wine. My parents hadn't gotten uh, enlightened that Gallo was something less than what could be expected of, of wine. But it was more important that there was plenty of food and plenty of it. And so... Then my mother would always lead off because she would, and I just loved her sense of discipline. <laughs> when there was going to be a music party, it was time for Jerry to learn a new song. So she would dutifully pick a song that somehow fit the season or the mood or somebody who was going to be one of the honored guests. It had to have some sort of meaning because the segue, the introduction to the song, was an important part of her sense of a total performance. Mm -hmm. And then religiously, every day she'd get out her guitar or the dulcimer and she would practice so that she would be up to par by the time the party came. So she would be the one to sort of signal that it was now music time and she'd pull out her guitar and give her introduction and sing her song. And then literally she would say, okay, now it's your turn. And she would pass the guitar to whoever was sitting on her right. And if they were duly prepared and had you know, gotten this beforehand, they would have had their song ready to go. Sure. Uh, because you could pass it to the person next to you once, but my mother would always remember who hadn't contributed and come back to the minor and ask for a song or a poem or a joke. Contribution. Some contribution. Everybody had to give something into the pot. I think one of my favorite aspects of these music these music party stories is the discipline with which Jerry learned these songs every week and performed them and gave them and um, it shows so much that these gatherings were not just social affairs but were really a platform for people in the community to share musical material. Yeah, and another way that they made those connections was a few years later uh, with the program they had on WFMT, The Wandering Folk Song. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited to share more about The Wandering Folk Song with you 
next week. Tune in. This has been The Archives. Thanks to Colby Maddox and the Resource Center at the Old Town School of Folk Music. For more information about goings-on at the school, please visit www.oldtownschool.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, follow your bliss. To men we will not be ashamed To turn, to turn will be our delight Till by turning, turning we come round, round Thank you very much. Good night.